Let's pray together this morning. Father, uh, I thank you for this opportunity or for this time that we could come together, we could sing your praises, we could give testimony to the work that you've done in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Lord, we're thankful that we can come together as your body and sing praises, remembering remembering the victory you've won. Uh, Father, and we are just so grateful for that. Father, today I pray that you would, you would teach us, that you would guide us, that you would send your spirit and that you would fill us. Um, And that you would help us to see that the reason we have this hope, the reason we can say, Lord God, you win every battle is because you have won every battle and you proved it by showing up after your death. You were resurrected. So, Father, today I pray that you would show us the significance of this event, of your resurrection, and you would help us to cling to it more tightly. Uh, Father, we just love you and we thank you for the work you're doing in us and through us and with us, Lord. And uh, we just praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <sighs> how many of y'all remember the fourth grade? Like being in the fourth grade? How many, do we have anybody in the fourth grade right now? Oh, come on. Right, I see a couple hands back there. Okay. That's awesome. Fourth grade was the best. Both years. No, no. Okay. A couple of you got that. No. Now, fourth grade was great. I love fourth grade. Um, and I'm going to share something. And Leanne, you might have to correct me later because you may or may not remember this. I, I specifically remember an assignment from fourth grade, like this one assignment. I don't know why because this has been a long time ago. But I specifically remember this assignment in this classroom. Now, um, we're all sitting there and we're told we have to do some uh, descriptive writing. We have to explain step by step how to do something. Do you remember that at all? I don't know why I do. Anyway, I remember this one event and this one assignment, for some reason, we're told to do um, this descriptive writing. We're trying to spell out, step by step, how to do this thing. So like if you were explaining how to tie your shoe, you would say step by step. You take your shoelaces, one in each hand, you cross them over, you twist the one around the other, and you pull it tight so it has an X. Like, you get the idea. So we had to do step by step. And the two things we had to explain, two things, okay? How many of you know how to do the Macarena? The Macarena. Uh, Somebody want to, okay, a couple of you are doing it, sort of. Can anybody, like, do the song for me? Nobody? Okay, fine. Anyway, you guys get the idea. So if I was going to explain how to do the Macarena, I would tell you, first you extend your right hand straight out in front of you, palm facing the ground. Next, you place your left hand straight out in front of you, facing the ground. Then you will flip your right hand. You guys get the idea, right? So if you know how to do it, you know, it's, uh, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. Okay, yeah, I'm not going to do the whole thing because Jared doesn't dance. So the first step was to, like, explain how to do the Macarena. And I don't know who won that one. I, for some reason, I even remember who had the best description of the second part. Then we had to explain how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, step by step, step by step. And I don't know why I remember the guy who actually did the best. I'm not going to say his name because you all don't know him anyway. But uh, I, I remember he, he said, and for some reason I remember this, instead of saying get the peanut butter or, or take the peanut butter or something like that, he said grab the peanut butter. I remember watching the teacher say grab the peanut butter, Ugh, snatch it away. And he did great, except he left one step out. And it was, it's an understandable thing. Um, so he said, take, grab the peanut butter, take your knife in your other hand, and put it into the peanut butter. And one thing he forgot, though, was, you know, that paper uh, aluminum foil on the top of a new thing of peanut butter? He forgot to take that off. 
So she's sitting there. She puts it in. Anyway, so they let him pass because, uh, yeah, for some reason, they th- he thought maybe, well, it's already an open can of peanut butter. So that's an understandable assumption. Anyway, I remember that because he left out one critical step, and that was to take that paper and foil. Now, notice I'm not talking about mine because I left out way more than one critical step. Um, and it was kind of fun watching the teachers go through these things to see if we actually spelled them out right. But if you leave out one step, one step throughout that process, you have not, you have not made a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You have not done the Macarena. Some of you are like, well, that's a good thing, right? <laughs> yeah, probably. But if you forget the turn, let's just say you forget the turn in the Macarena, right? At the end of the thing, you forget the turn, then you're facing the wrong direction, and you're not doing the Macarena anymore. You're just hitting people that are next to you. So you have to make sure you do all the steps, that you have all of the steps. And the reason I bring this up is because today I believe we're going to address one step of the gospel, one part of the gospel that I'm afraid many of us often leave out. I'm afraid many of us often leave this step out. So now that you're wondering, I'm going to give you an update for the next few weeks before we get back to it. So today, today we're going to be finishing this up where I'm going to answer one more question before we jump back to Matthew. So if you're looking for where we're going to be next week, we're going to dive back to Matthew. Matthew 8, we're going to pick up with that. But this week, we're going to answer one more question. One more question. Now, some of you, I didn't get to your questions. Um, I have not answered all of your questions. And this is a good plug to be able to say, if you have questions, if you have things that you have always wondered about, you just don't know how to reconcile this with the Bible, you just don't have any idea how this all fits. Um, My white car sits out here in front of the building um, throughout the week. If my car's here, stop and talk to me. If you have questions, I'm not saying I have all the answers, but I'll be happy to wrestle with the questions with you. I'm glad to do that. So if you have questions that you just have always wondered, like, God, why, why does this happen? Or, or how does this line up with the Bible? Like, if you've ever had those questions, stop by and talk to me. Or open your bulletin. My phone number is in the bulletin. It is on Facebook right now. It is, it's plastered everywhere. Call me. I'll be happy to talk to you. And it, I'm not saying I have the answers, but I'll be happy to wrestle with the questions with you. Okay? So, If you want to do that, I'd be happy to walk through those. So if I don't get to your question, I'm sorry, but today we're going to field one last question. And this one actually did not come from a Sunday school class. I took this from an individual, so you have Alan Yoakum to thank for this question. Um, Not to put you on the spot or anything, but you were the one that brought it to my attention. So this one last question, and that's this. Okay, this week we're going to talk about this question. I was asked, if Jesus paid for our sins on the cross... If Jesus paid for our sins on the cross, which is what we believe, right? That Jesus paid for our sins on the cross. Why is the resurrection necessary? Why is the resurrection necessary? I mean, the price has already been paid on the cross, right? Okay, then why is the resurrection an essential part of the gospel? I mean, if I went around the room right now and I asked you to give me your understanding of the gospel and just said, okay, lay out the gospel for me. Uh, many of you could probably do that. You'd probably do a fair job of it. You would probably say something along the lines of Jesus lived a perfect life uh, and then he died on the cross for my sin. So we're acknowledging that God is perfectly holy. Like God is perfect in every single way. God is perfect. And standing before God, we have fallen short of perfection. We've sinned, right? We, we get that idea. So we, we stand then guilty before an infinitely holy God, right? Are you all tracking with this so far, right? So we understand that part of the gospel. We are all guilty before an infinitely holy God, and God rightly judges us as guilty. He is right in his judgment. And therefore, because we are guilty, we stand condemned. But God loved us so much, 
that he sent his son, Jesus, to live the perfect life we couldn't live. And then he died a death on the cross, paying my penalty. And many of us would stop there. We say, Jesus paid my price on the cross. And we would stop there. And you're right. The problem is, have we said a word about the resurrection yet? That's what I'm saying. I think we leave out one crucial step to the gospel. We often leave out this one crucial step. Um, I'd like to share this quote from, uh, from, Christianity, uh, from Christianity Today. I forget the author's name. I think it might be on that slide at the end. So, uh, but it's, he's, he wrote, By leaving out the empty tomb, our understanding of the cross itself becomes distorted. It opens the door to seeing forgiveness of personal sin as the only element of the gospel. It can lead us to believe that eradicating private sin is the only activity of our lives. The resurrectionless understanding... This resurrectionless understanding creates a story much too small for us to live in. It leaves Jesus in the past on the cross at a distance of, of thousands of miles from North America in 20 centuries. It becomes too easy for us to conclude there was a problem, he fixed it. Now it's up to us to set our lives straight. This leaves the activity of grace in the past as if Jesus stocked a medicine cabinet two millennia ago, and now we have to find the right bottle for our newest ailment. Y'all seeing the problem here? See, we treat this event as if it's solely past, but how does that help us in our future? How does that help us in the present? Jesus did the work 2,000 years ago, stories over there. But, oh, there's so much more. See, we say that the Christian faith is about having life, an everlasting life. That goes on into the future. It's not locked in the past somewhere. So, how do we reconcile that? How do we add this? Why is it that we often leave out this, this important event, the resurrection of Christ, and how is it necessary? Well, those are the questions I want to wrestle with today, that I want us to dive in today. And the way I want to do it is by opening God's Word together to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, perfectly enough. Uh-huh. I believe Colby referenced that here just a little bit ago. So, I, funny story. I heard him say 1 Corinthians 15 during that communion meditation. I pulled out my phone to start texting him, and then I ran out of time. So anyway, um, yeah, I was so excited. 1 Corinthians 15 will be our text. Would you all stand with me? Let's read God's word together. And by the way, if you have 1 Corinthians 15 open, that's fantastic. If you want to bookmark that for just a second, also find uh, Romans chapter 5, because we're going to jump back there here in just a moment. But we'll be reading 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to read a good chunk of it. We're going to start in verse 1. It says... Now, I want to make clear, to, clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, uh, then to the apostles. Last of, all, uh, last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. Jump with me down to verse 12. It says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say, There is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. 
Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. But as it is, Christ has, has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Thank God for his word and you may be seated. So our question today, right there on the screen, what is the significance of the resurrection if the cross was the payment for our sins? What then is the significance of the resurrection? And I think this is an important question. It pairs well with what we talked about last week. Did Jesus want to die on the cross? Well, yes, but no. Um, I know that's kind of dodging the question a little bit, but I think that's the answer. Yes and no. But now we look at the resurrection. So, what's the significance? Well, first, Jesus' resurrection is an essential part of true gospel proclamation. Now, this is part of who we want to be as a church. Like, this is a part of what we're trying to accomplish. We want to be a body of believers who proclaim Christ. We want to proclaim who Christ is, what he's done, the good news of Jesus. That's part of who we are. We want to talk about Jesus. And if the resurrection is an essential part of true gospel proclamation, then we must be telling people unashamedly that we believe Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus did not stay dead. Now, the world's going to see that and say, you guys are crazy. People don't come back from the dead. Well, I can tell you on the authority of Scripture, yes, they do. Yes, they do. Simply saying that Jesus died, however, leaves out this essential element of the gospel. See, Paul here in 1 Corinthians 15 lays out what's been, what's been called the simple gospel. Like, this is the essential elements to the gospel. He says in verse 1, Now I want to make clear to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved. So Paul's saying that this, this is what I've said to you, and you received it. You received what I said to you, that's good. And now you've even taken your stand on this gospel. And through this gospel, he says, you are being saved. This is the gospel that saves you, he says. Paul basically says, I'm about to lay out the very thing that saved you to which you are clinging. He says, I'm going to lay it all out right here, okay? And then he gives us these essential elements to, and I believe this is to any true gospel proclamation. He lays out these essential elements. In verse 3, he says, for I passed on to you is most important what I also received. Did you hear what he called these things? He called them most important I pass on to you what is most important. Like, look, look, we can get some things wrong. I promise you, I will get some things wrong. I guarantee it. I do not have unlimited knowledge. And I, that's just true. And everybody in here knows that's true. Y'all have met me. I don't have perfect knowledge. But here's the thing. Neither do any of you. All of us have gaps somewhere, except for Hunter. He's smiling right here like he's got perfect knowledge. Just... Smartest guy I've ever met. Um, sorry, I shouldn't have gone there. But anyway, we, we know that these are the most important things. And we can afford to be wrong on a couple things. We are wrong on a couple things, I'm sure. All of us have gaps in our theology somewhere. Every single one of us. And I promise you I have mine. I, I promise I have mine. Now, if I knew what they were, I would try to do better. But obviously, we don't know. We are ignorant of some of our gaps. So there are some things that we will never figure out that we can never perfectly understand. But Paul here says, these things are most important. In other words, we cannot afford to be wrong on these things. These things are the essential elements. These are the most important things. Don't miss these. And then he says, in the last part of verse 3, he says, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. 
Now, Paul very well could have said, these are the most important things. Christ died, the end. He could have said, that's the most important thing. But that's not what he said. He didn't say that. He certainly says he died for your sins, according to the scriptures. Like God's word says that there was a Messiah that had to take the place of man, like the sacrificial lamb had to be offered. Had to be offered. And Christ died as that sacrificial lamb. Yes, he did. He died for our sins. And then he was buried. Not only was he dead, but then these Roman officials had him taken down off. They had him placed in a tomb. They sealed the tomb, placed it under guard. Jesus was buried. Jesus was dead. He died for your sins. He was buried. But then there's one more step. Because then he was raised. He was raised, Paul says. This is a necessary part of the good news, according to Paul. And he goes on to say that we don't just have to take his word for it. He says, you don't just have to take my word for it. There's there's far more than that. Verse 5, still part of this simple gospel. He says that Jesus proved it. And that, and oh boy, I lost my spot. And that Jesus appeared to Cephas. Says he appeared to Peter, right? He appeared to Cephas and then the twelve. Okay, so you're telling me Jesus was raised. Okay, Paul, yeah. So you say he was raised and his closest friends are going to back you up on that. Of course they will. They gave their life to follow this guy. They got an awful lot to lose here. So, of course, they'll back you up on that. Do we have to just take these 13 guys' word for it? Like, is, is that enough? Like, okay, let's just, let's just play this out for a minute. If I told you I saw this really cool event, like I saw this really cool event, and I, I tell you, here's my testimony about this thing, and it seems like way out there. Like, it seems it's just absolutely crazy. And I tell you that this thing happened. You're going to be like, yeah, Jared, you may have seen that wrong. And you might be right. I mean... We, we sometimes have poor perceptions of the way things actually take place. So, okay, fine. But what if I told you that our elders, we were here, all, all the elders of Christian Fellowship Church, we were gathered together, we were praying, and we saw this thing, like this amazing thing happen. You'd be like, yeah, okay, but it was the elders of the church, okay? Of course, you're all going to, like, back each other up. Of course, you're going to say that. Okay, all right. How many does it take, though? How many does it take? Because he goes on to say, not only did this happen, but then in verse 6 he says, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Over 500 people saw the resurrected Christ. How many does it take? If I told you not only did our elders all see this, but everybody in this room, we saw the same thing. I don't know how many people there are here today. I think that says 124. There's 124 people in the room. And we all say we saw the exact same thing today. We saw the exact same thing. But we can go further than that. Let's say every church in Mound City, the congregations of every church in Mound City, we all got together and we all said, no, this thing really did happen. We all saw it. We all have the same account of how it took place. How many people does it take before you believe the testimony? Over 500 people at one time saw that Jesus was raised. 500 people saw that Jesus was raised. You want good news? Well, here it is. It's this. Not only did Jesus love you enough to take on your sin, not only did he love you enough to take on your shame and your guilt and your condemnation and die on a Roman cross for it, not only did he love you that much, But then he proved that he's able to set you free from death and hell and sin by being raised from the dead because he is alive. And he showed himself and he proved that he has power even over death. You know, we just sang, the battle belongs to you. Like, y'all, you can't win the battle over death. It's going to catch you eventually. You cannot win that battle. Because again, you have sinned 
And therefore, you are rightly deemed guilty. Jesus did win it. He won that battle. And any gospel proclamation that leaves out this fact that Jesus was raised, it falls short of being called the good news. That's what the gospel is, right? It's the good news. Anything that leaves out the resurrection falls short of being the good news. But why? Why? Well, because this is the very reason we have hope, right? That Jesus was raised. That's why we have hope. Paul continues here in 1 Corinthians to show that not only is Jesus' resurrection an essential part of true gospel proclamation, but it's also an essential part of true faith. It's an essential part of true faith. That's our next part. Jesus' resurrection is an essential part of true Christian faith. Verse 12 says, Now now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And listen to this. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. If Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, your faith is useless. That's what Paul writes here. It's in vain. It's not worth it. Without the resurrection, the Christian faith ceases to be the Christian faith. It's no longer the Christian faith if you take away the resurrection. To go a step further, Paul says that in verse 15, he says that if Jesus wasn't raised, then he and the other Christians are liars. Literally what the Greek says there is that they're found to be false witnesses, false testifiers. Right? Like in a judicial sense, if you're sitting on the stand, that basically means all these, all these witnesses, they're all lying to you. They're all lying on the stand. But then there's this even stronger claim in verse 17. He says, if Christ, has not been, if Christ has not been raised, he says, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sin. If Jesus wasn't raised, you are still in your sins, is what Paul says. How so? How so? Like, it, if we just understand the gospel the way I just laid out, many of us would share the gospel, like that Jesus died for our sins. Okay, so then aren't we innocent? Well, Paul just wrote, if Christ wasn't raised, then you are still in your sins. So how so? Wasn't Jesus' death sufficient? Wasn't it enough? Well, here's the thing. According to Paul, according to what he writes right here, and again, you can get mad at me if you want, but it's really Paul that says this. He says no. He says, if Christ wasn't raised, you are still in your sins. The crucifixion, well, I want to be very careful, and I want you to understand what I'm saying. The crucifixion alone is not enough. Christ had to be raised. Had to be raised. But why? Well, since you asked me why, I'll tell you. Verse 18 says, Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. In other words, if Jesus wasn't raised, then there is no resurrection. There is no life. If Jesus isn't alive, then there's no hope for us to be alive. Our hope isn't simply to be forgiven of transgression so that we can have a clear conscience while our bodies and our souls rot in the ground. That's not the purpose. That's not the idea of the Christian faith. That's, nothing, that's, like, that's not it. Instead, our hope is that we can have life. That's why I've quoted the last couple of weeks. That's why it seems like it keeps on coming up. John 6, 68. It says, it says that Jesus alone has the words of life. Jesus has the words of eternal life. The Christian faith is about life, not just dying with a clear conscience. It's about having real, eternal, lasting life. And Jesus alone has that. The point is that if Jesus wasn't raised, then the most we can hope for is to decay in the ground while our souls perish. And that's not much of a hope. That's not really much to get excited about. See, the Christian faith brings life. So according to Paul's argument here, if Jesus, was, Jesus, wasn't, nah, if Jesus wasn't raised, the rest is irrelevant. And we are still suffering the consequences of our sin. 
Jesus' resurrection is essential to Christian faith. And that's why Paul says in verse 19, he says, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. Like, if you have spent your life following Jesus, but there is no resurrection from the dead, if you have, you've, you've just, you've avoided the pleasures of this life, because you are so sure that Jesus is the answer. Like you say, Jesus, I'm going to lay down my life to follow you. I'm going to live like you do, like you did. I'm going to, I'm going to affection. You have wasted your life. And you should be pitied more than anyone. If there is no resurrection, you should be pitied. But, but there is life. Since the Christian faith claims to result in eternal life, the resurrection is an essential part of Christian faith. So we see it's an essential part of proclamation and the Christian faith. And then third, Jesus' resurrection is an essential part of our complete identification. It's an essential part of our complete identification with Christ. See, in my opinion, this is where the rubber meets the road. Like, this is where it, it really, get, it sink, you can sink your teeth into this. If we are identified with Christ in his death and burial, good, okay, then you're still dead and buried. If that's how you identify with Christ, in his death and burial, well, then you're still going to be identified in the grave. Okay. But we are also able to be identified with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And his resurrection. That's what 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22 says, right? Paul goes on, he says, but as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. In other words, he says, so there is a resurrection from the dead, which means that faith in Jesus can bring life. It can bring life. He continues, he says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits, not the only fruits, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. See, this ties to a truth we looked at a couple weeks ago. We talked about how we have a representative, right? We had, we had Adam, the first man, as our representative. He was our representative and he failed. Therefore, we are all under condemnation because the one man sinned. Adam sinned. We're guilty because he was our representative. Right? We talked about this with David and Goliath, right? David was the representative for the nation of Israel. And if David lost that fight, then the entire nation of Israel lost that fight. That's what happened with Adam. He was mankind's representative. Which means that in Adam, or in mankind, all of us have failed, and therefore we are all destined to die, physically, spiritually, eternally. All men are destined for this death. All. But as Paul says here, those in Christ will be made alive because Christ was made alive. Because he was resurrected. We can have hope for a future. And at this point, I think it's worth jumping back to Romans. I told you we were going to go there, so if you would, flip with me to Romans chapter 5, real quick. Um, and we're going to read a pretty good section here. Okay, We're going to begin in verse 12, and we're going to read through 21. Now, this is a pretty good section. I just want us to highlight a few things from this se- section. So, um, Romans chapter 5, we're going to begin in verse 12, and it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people, because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He is a type of the coming one. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man's trespass the many died, 
How much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many? And the gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one sin came the judgment, resulting in condemnation. But from many trespasses came the gift, resulting in justification. Since by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man? Jesus Christ. So then, as through one trespass, as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's obedience or disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that's a lot. What's the point? Like, why did we just jump over here to read this? I think think it's this. The point is that the resurrection, in other words, receiving life, being raised from the dead, and I'm not just talking about this life, I'm talking about eternal, everlasting life that never ends. That life is a necessary result of a complete identification with Jesus. If we are completely identified in Jesus, then life is a necessary result. See, because as as Paul lays out here in Romans, as he lays out here in Romans, we have one of two representatives. That's right. This is a two-party system. (laughs) Not getting political here. This one is a two-party system. There is no third party you can choose. It's one or the other. Paul says, you have one of two representatives. One of two representatives. Adam or Jesus. You can either be identified with Adam. And by the way, we all have this identification because we're all human. We are all in some way identified with Adam. Literally, the name Adam comes from the term used for, uh, for him in the garden and after the fall. It's Adam. It's the term for mankind. Right? Um, if we were to flip over to Genesis 1.26, it says this. It says, Then God said, Let us make man, or let us make Adam, let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness. That's what this word man in the Hebrew, it's the, the Hebrew word Adam. Um, and that's what this word means. It means man or mankind. That's where Adam's name comes from. So whenever we talk about Adam and Eve in the garden, we're talking about Adam, who is man. Adam, mankind, is there in the garden. And because we are all a part of Adam, I think you all are, are like human beings. You're, like you're all a part of mankind, right? There's no like sheep in the room, are there? Um, okay, I didn't think so. I didn't hear anybody. I joke about my son sounding like a baby goat sometimes, but that's one thing. Anyway, way off topic. Anyway, I think you're all part of mankind, right? And because of that, we are necessarily identified with him. We are identified with Adam, which means that we are destined for death. He, was our, he is our representative. And he failed. He sinned. He fell short. Which means that death is the result for him. And for us. So we can be identified with Adam. In fact, we must in some way be identified with Adam. However, Romans shows us that we can be identified with a second man. He says that there is another man. He says there's a second Adam. Except this one is perfect. This one did not sin in Adam's likeness. He didn't sin at all. This man was Jesus. And whenever we come and whenever we cling to Jesus, or to put it like Paul, he says, whenever we are in Christ, 
Whenever we are in him, we receive his verdict. We receive his verdict. See, we become like him. And as we saw just a few minutes ago from 1 Corinthians, Jesus was raised. Now, I'm going to spell this out in, in just about the best way I saw it. And I saw it spelled out in just a logical chart, like a flow. It was a flow chart, okay? So we have this, right? We have an infinitely holy God. We are sinners before God. Therefore, we are condemned. Therefore, we deserve death. Y'all tracking with that? That seems pretty, pretty linear, pretty logical, okay? Now, the solution seems pretty sensitive also, right? We have, we have God is holy. Jesus did not sin. Therefore, Jesus, whenever he came, he bore our condemnation, which results in us receiving life. But there's a step missing, right? Still, the resurrection is missing. But the resurrection is a necessary result. See, if we are in Christ, and he dies the death that we deserve, that's true. But if we are in Christ, and he bears our condemnation, then we must receive a verdict that is the same as Christ. And Jesus' verdict was innocent. It was justified. Which means that if Jesus was justified, then we are justified. And what is the necessary outcome of a declaration of someone's justification? What is the necessary outcome of someone being justified, of being deemed innocent? The answer is life. Life. And if we are in Christ, if we receive his verdict, then we receive a verdict of innocent, of justified, and we get to obtain life with Christ. That's the good news. That's part of the good news. If there is no resurrection, if the verdict is justified but he remains dead, well, then is it, could it possibly really be a justified verdict? No, because justification has to lead to life. There must be life. Um, there's a pastor in Tennessee named Lee Tankersley. Um, he, he says it this way. He says, Because Christ lived, died, and was raised as our representative substitute, his perfect obedience is credited to us. His penalty-bearing death counts for us, and his justifying resurrection is the Lord's approval of all of us who trust in the righteous Son. Y'all hear that? Not only can we be forgiven of our sins and die with a clear conscience, but we can be raised to eternal life because we are in Christ. We are identified with him. The resurrection is a part of our story if we are completely identified with Christ. Y'all, that's the good news. You aren't going to have to be dead in your sins and just hope that you can rot with a clear conscience. No, you have better news than that. Death isn't the end of your story if you are raised with Christ. There's something far greater than that. Jesus' resurrection is an essential part of true gospel proclamation of true Christian faith and our complete identification with Christ. So what? So what? Like, the logical question then is all this. The logical question I want to ask you is this. With whom are you going to be identified? I think that's about as simple as it gets. With whom will you be identified? Will you be counted with Adam? Are you just going to say, "I'm, I'm with mankind on this one? I'm going to do things according to my strength. I'm going to do things according to my way. I'm going to live my life for my pleasure and my own glorification. And I'm going to make sure that life is all about me. Like it's going to be all about me. I'm going to work for my comfort. Or maybe, maybe you say, no, I'm not that selfish. I'm working for my family's comfort. But still, then aren't you still just striving for mankind? Isn't that still what your life centers around? It still winds up being centered around mankind. No, don't misunderstand. Work for your family. Love your family. Absolutely. But your family is not the end of everything. Jesus is the end of everything. He's the answer. He's the one that was there in the beginning. He's the one that will be standing victorious in the end. The story is about Jesus. 
It's about him. So who will you be identified with? Will you be identified with mankind who says the life is about me and I want to take God's place? I want to know like God knows. I want people to see me and think I'm special. Well, one of my favorite things to say from this is it's not all about you. Like, it's not all about you. Yeah, it's true. So, it's not all about you. See, will you be identified with mankind or will you be completely identified with the second man? Will you be completely identified with Jesus in him? And in doing so, in identifying with him, you trust him completely, trusting that his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection are sufficient for you also. Are you willing to trust that? See, because if your life is in him, it means that your life has to look like his. Let me say this differently. Your life will look more and more like his as you move forward. His desires become your desires. You change your desires to match his desires. Your plans change to match his plans. He becomes your life. Jesus is all-consuming. It's not halfway in, halfway out. There's too many scriptures to talk about those who are just like, well, I want to get close to being in on Jesus. Look, halfway is not far enough. Jesus isn't going to play second. If you say, well, I, want, I kind, of want to be, kind of want to be man with mankind over here and work for my pleasures, but yeah, I'll give Jesus some of this. It's not far enough. Jesus wants your life. And while I want you to see that on the surface, like it, this is a really simple thing. Will you be counted with Jesus or will you be counted with Adam? That's a really simple question to ask. And in concept, like, that's simple. You all can track that, right? Who are you going to identify with, Adam or Jesus? And I hope you know the, the right answer. I'm going to give you, here's the cheat. The answer is with Jesus. That's where you want to be, okay? It's incredibly simple in concept. We get the concept. But in practice, this is really difficult because what it means is dying to myself, saying I'm not living for my flesh anymore. I'm not living for my desires, my plans, my, my goals. Instead, I want Jesus' plans, his desires, his goals, even above my own. Jesus' life is more important than mine. His perfection is greater than mine. And it means dying to yourself. And if you try to cling to your life, you can never possibly cling to his. In order to cling to Jesus, you have to let go of yourself. So I encourage you today, what I want to encourage you with today is to be identified with Jesus by coming to him in absolute trust, absolute faith, and declaring that the life which used to belong to you now belongs in him. It's his, his life. And in this way, we can enjoy his justifying resurrection. That's the significance of the resurrection. It brings life. Let's pray. Father, um, I think we would miss the point if we didn't stop and say thank you for the resurrection. Thank you that there there is hope for life. Despite the fact that we are sinners and we deserve, your, we deserve condemnation. Uh, we deserve death. Father, and that's not because somebody else did something to us or the devil made us do anything or for any other reason other than we chose poorly or we chose ourselves over you. So, Father, I, I just thank you that you've made a way that we can be forgiven through your life, through your death, through your burial, through your resurrection. Lord, and then you proved it. You sealed it. You said we, you could be justified along with Christ. Lord, I thank you that we can receive that justification. Father, I pray today 
for those who may not have been willing to lay down their own lives, that have been clinging to themselves and their own desires, their own plans, their own lives. Lord, I pray that you would convict them, that you would, you would show them their sin, and that they would turn, they would repent, and that they would follow after you, that they would commit their lives to you, that they would follow you with, with everything they have, knowing that nothing else is sufficient. Father, and for those of us that have been Christians for years, Lord, I know that there are still blind spots, those things that I, I don't even realize I'm holding on to. Lord, I pray that you would open my eyes, that you would show me where I've fallen short. Father, and help me to look more like Jesus. Father, in all of this, we say thank you that you didn't stay dead. Lord, that you didn't say the cross is the end. Instead, you said that there is life, that there is a resurrection. And Lord, we thank you for that hope, for that joy, for that goodness that you've shared with us through the work of Jesus. Um, Lord, we could never possibly do that on our own, so we praise you for it, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.